Hello, welcome everyone to Americana Quill, Writer to Writer. This show is brought to you by nobody. With that said, help us grow by pressing the like button on YouTube or subscribing on the platform that you choose to listen to. Tell a friend that scribes. My guest is someone who taught me the ropes about self-publishing as he is the author of a sports book, The Missing Momentum, The Greatest to Never Do It. Winning a championship is the most important achievement for an athlete and players that won championships are the greatest. Looking at the, looking at the statistics, the majority of the athletes that are top 10 in categories are champion athletes. It's about praising athletes that are not mentioned and separated because they didn't win a championship. The book features interviews with forecasters from ESPN and Fox Sports, sports experts and pro athletes from MLB and NFL. Although sports is his first love, he took his craft to other fields and has been a media savvy communications manager with nearly 10 years of combined experience in strategic marketing public facing outreach and media relations. He has firsthand experience creating a variety of content with a journalistic style that captures stories that elevated brand affinity while increasing engagement. He has leveraged his ability to build and maintain relationships to develop opportunities and drive campaign st strategies to achieve organizational goals. And a few of his accomplishments is him winning Associated Press Awards and many other things. I present to you, Henrik Thomas. How's everything going, Brinton Woodall? This is great. Thanks for having me on. I'm honored to be here. Well, thank you for even joining, man. I, I greatly appreciate that. Um, well, I've known you since I was a kid. Absolutely. I was probably one of the first people that um, you probably expressed that you had a passion to be in, in journalism of different formats. Definitely. And one of those formats was um, you being a writer, freelance writer of, of sports and presenting them to blogs and things like that. And then even writing your own sports book. And the interesting thing is that you actually showed me how to um, DIY, do it, do it yourself kind of approach to self-publishing. So. I would like to know who taught you how to um, self-publish or where did your writing start? Where did your, um, your journey start with writing? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So pretty much how it started was it, it really didn't start with the actual, I would say the actual craft of writing. It really started with my love of sports. Um, so I would say that's where it started. So I would, you know, you know, I would pretty much watch sports all day, every day. I didn't really have a life. I would just sit in front of the TV and just watch sports all the time. But you would watch sports like a student. You didn't watch it like a um, like a fan or a junkie. You watched it trying to understand the certain nuances that journalists would pick or journalists would pick up on, and then Absolutely. from there focus and study those things. Absolutely. Like the, the, the stats, why this person's considered good in clutch moments, why they're not. You will Absolutely. try to follow those type of trends of like a like an analyst of, of statistics, not just of just watching the game and saying, I know the game. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, that that studying really got me interested in journalism because that's pretty much what journalists do. You know, and I, that's what pretty much drew me more into writing. So what I did was I believe when I was 16 years old, I would go on Fox Sports, ESPN, and CBS Sports, and just pretty much read up on the news that's pretty much, you know, that's taking place, just so that I'm, 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 in, I'm informed, I'm properly informed. And then I remember when I was on Fox Sports website, 
I saw that you can actually write blogs. And I was 16 years old. So I said, you know, I'm actually going to try this out, you know, we'll give it a shot. I was reading a lot of the blogs that was on there and they were great and really informative. And a lot of these people knew what they were talking about. So I figured I'll, I'll give it a shot. And so I believe I was 16 years old at the time. So I was writing right. blogs like all the time. I was pretty much, you know, opinion pieces. And, you know, what, what was the cool thing about it is that it was pretty much almost like a community. So we had a lot of bloggers on that website that was blogging on a consistent basis. And I'm blogging on a consistent basis and we're all blogging on a consistent basis. So what's taking place is that we're developing kind of like this, this, this relationship. So what would happen uh, is- Almost you know, like, a, like an ecosystem of, of, its, of its own chambers. Yes, uh, absolutely. So yeah. they'll read my blogs and they'll comment. I'll read their blogs, they'll comment. We'll exchange emails and they'll actually give me tips along the way you know, great piece, won't you try, try doing this, try doing that. And that, you know, that helped me along the way. And as I continue writing is like, it's like riding a bike. I would say it's more like a, it's, it's a skill, it's a craft. So the more you do it, the better you actually get at it. The less you do it, the more your skill starts to diminish. So I always tell people when I was, I did my, um, when I was in my certificate program at Northwestern University, one of the professors said that what you want to do is you want to treat writing as if it's an actual skill, as if you're playing basketball, as if you're actually a, a painter, an artist. You want to do that every single day. You want to keep sharpening that tool every single day because that's how you're going to get better. Not just writing, but reading as well because reading helps you pick up different vocabulary words. It helps, actually helps you get a different perspective on actual writing. And so that's what I was doing consistently. And Ooh, I would Cooler ways that. to do sentence structuring and things like that. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, you're a writer, you know how to do this. And that's- No, but this is for everyone. So I'm happy that you're even sharing all this. Oh yes, definitely. And so I would do that on a consistent basis. And also too, what I would do is I would get people to actually be able to read my pieces they give me some feedback as well and so doing that is what pretty much helped me develop that skill now to be completely honest with you i'm still not happy where i am right now in my writing ability um but is i think it because you felt like you took a break from it a little bit or is that you had to kind of pivot in the type of writing you're doing because i know you're not necessarily in doing sports or for writing for sports anymore you're writing more of different content that I don't think you were always interested in as a kid. So Absolutely. that's where, where it changes. Yeah, I would say it's more so, I would say it's more so just me just never really being happy as far as my skills. So I'm always feeling like I can get better. I always mm -hmm. feel like I can get better. I always feel like I can improve. I always right. feel like, you know, I could have done this better. And I think that's where it mostly comes from. And so that's that's what I would pretty much say. The reason why it started out with sports is because of my love for actual sports. And so doing that was pretty much helped me sharpen that tool. And that was the goal really to actually be a sportscaster, be a sports journalist, but mainly on the writing side of things. Got it. But as I got older, I you know, I pivoted. So pretty much sports was really fun, but then as I get older, I guess your interest starts to change a little bit. So I watch sports all the time. I was watching the NBA finals, you know, yesterday. I was, you know, I watched, you know, the Eagles lose to the Pittsburgh Steelers, unfortunately, you know, even watching my college team play on Saturday. So I'm still into sports, but 
as you get older, your, your interest starts to pivot. So what, what took place is when I got hired as a news reporter for an NPR affiliate, WQCS, I actually was doing just general news as a news reporter and, and doing general news and also being a freelance journalist for the St. Lucie News Tribune, I was doing hardcore news. So I remember covering a case where an actual person shot and killed a police officer. And I actually had to go and interview the family. And, you know, it was really hardcore journalism and, and good journalism too, is what I liked. And I saw that this stuff actually, actually has an impact on someone's life, you know? And, and that's where the moment where I started to change a little bit from actual just doing sports and to actually covering stories and doing work that's actually impactful to someone's life. What is this person, what can this person use from this actual story? Mm-hmm. What, how is this going to impact this individual's life? And right. that's where I actually started to make a change because I didn't want to just cover sports because it's fun. Because sports is, you know, it's entertaining. But the pieces I wanted to cover is how is this story going to better someone's life and how are they going to be able to take this information and utilize this information? And I think that's where things actually started to change. And to be honest with you, I actually started to feel good about myself because I felt like I wasn't just doing something I like to do when I'm also making a difference in someone's life with the stories that I'm covering. And then that transcended into actually me doing more work in the community. Right. And still using that skill to be able to do work in the community that's going to impact someone's life. But it was a long journey. It was definitely a long journey. Definitely. So what's the last book you've read as far as fiction and then nonfiction, if you've read both sides of the coin? Yes. So I, well, the book I'm reading now is, well, I'm reading two books now. So I'm reading The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, which is a really great book. Um, And, you know, when Malcolm X said that one book, reading one book can change your life, he's definitely on point with that. So I would say The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And what what do you like about that book? The reason why I like about that book. So far, you finished it. Yes. So it talks about right now, we live in a day and age where social justice is a big issue in our country. Absolutely. Um, You know, equality is a big issue in our country. Uh, Mm -hmm. Systemic racism is a big issue in our country. And we live in a country where not everyone is treated fairly. And the new Jim Crow talks about mass incarceration and how mass incarceration was pretty much designed to oppress the black man in America. And a lot of times we don't really think about that. We don't think about how we are, we only make up 13% of the population, but we are incarcerated at a higher rate than any other ethnic group in America. There's no other country that incarcerates their minority their minorities more than the United States. We incarcerate our minorities at a higher rate than any other country. And we don't even make up the majority of the population. And when you think about that, you think, why is this? And Michelle Alexander does a really great job breaking this down in the book, how our communities are over-policed more so than any other community. So if police officers are more focused on the black community, then of course, we're going to be arrested at a higher rate because they're paying more attention to the black community. 
right. than the white community. And so when you look at those things, you're thinking, wow, you know, why is this always an issue? You know, how there is a strategic plan to target, you know, the black race when it comes to policing. So you think about these things and you see how it actually contributes to the downfall of and a lot of the issues in our community. A lot of people when they ride when they drive through a black community, a lot of times they say, wow, look at all these people. They they they're very judgmental, but they don't actually really know that it's not because of and now some of it has to do with decision making, but I think overall a lot of it there's a root you know, you have to get to the root of the issue. And the root of the issue is systemic racism, which mass incarceration plays a part in that. Right. And I think she does a really great job at that. Um, I'm actually on chapter four right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a book that I've been wanting to read for a very long time. And I've, I'm really happy I actually got the opportunity to really be able to get the book and actually read the book. And it's really opening my eyes to a lot of things, I would say. Right. And so, also, mm-hmm. I know you're big on research. Sorry for cutting you. Oh, no, it's fine. Um, it's fine. So when you're reading certain books, like I'm starting to now do the whole, I like to highlight key things. Of So whenever I do look back at it, I remember key points and reference. Are you doing that with this book or are you just reading it as a free flowing? Yes. So mind? a few things, actually. Um, the one thing that actually stood out to me in this book, which I always knew was the case, but Michelle Alexander actually she she pretty much pinpoints on it and you know how when you speak to your you know your white counterparts and you you know they say things like oh you know i have tons of black friends i'm not racist or we even saw it in a debate last week where um vice president mike pence said that you know donald trump has a jewish grandson and a jewish son-in-law so he can't be you know prejudiced or so but michelle alexander says there's something called implicit bias and implicit bias is a bias without even realizing you actually have it and just because you are friends with someone of a different race or different ethnicity doesn't mean that you don't have an implicit bias so just because i may have a white friend doesn't mean that i'm not I don't have an implicit bias against white people because a lot of the times it could be some subconsciously and you don't even realize it. And a lot of the times, you know, there was a quote that I actually found on the internet somewhere. I forgot who said this quote, but just because someone is friends with you doesn't mean that they're not racist towards black people. They could still be racist towards black people. It just means- They just think you're, like you're, you. you're a, little bit, a little bit better of a black person compared to the rest of them. Exactly. And so she does a really good job actually highlighting that in the actual book, which I think is but really important. What I'm asking you is like, do you highlight some things when you're reading it? And if, you, if it catches your attention to hold on to it for a later date, I'm asking your research process. Are you highlighting or are you just reading through? I'm, I would say I'm, I'm not highlighting per se, what I am is I'm reading and then when I find something I stop and then I Google to do more research that way I would say. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, for instance, I would I like for instance, during the Ronald Reagan era, um, I believe this was in the third chapter of the book she talks about an actual grant see what was taking place was Ronald Reagan, President Ronald Reagan actually wanted to target the black community and he wanted to get the, he wanted to target them and pretty much increase the amount of times 
the law enforcement arrest of black people in black communities for drug offenses, but he wanted to get local law enforcement more involved. And he, he tried to get local law enforcement more involved because it was mainly the federal agencies, but he wanted to get local law enforcement involved. But local law enforcement said, hey, we want to focus more on crime. We don't really want to focus more on a lot of these drug offenses. So right. what he did was he thought strategically, unfortunately, and he created a grant. And this grant was a lots of money. I forgot how much it was and I forgot the name of the grant. I believe it was called the Bird Grant or something Bird. And what he did was this grant was for specifically for local law enforcement, but there was a catch. He said, what you have to do is this grant is going to fund you to be able to get the necessary equipment you need and the necessary staff you need to be able to increase the, the, the drug patrol and being able to arrest the drug offenders in these communities. And he also put a quota on it and he pretty much put in the in the actual grant that you have to give updates each quarter on the amount of arrest the arrest that you made mm-hmm. and depending on the arrest you made you will be able to get more money and this is how he was able to use this grant to be able to, to be able to entice local law enforcement to be able to patrol black communities even more which Got it which led to a lot of, so I, what I did was I was able to do more research on that to see, wow, I didn't even realize that. And, and there it goes. It was, uh, it was definitely a few articles I read where that actually was the case. Uh, so it's definitely a great book. I definitely encourage anyone who wants to pretty much in, you know, expand their knowledge in mass incarceration and how that actually is oppressing a lot of black men in America, I would definitely recommend them to read that book. Absolutely. Jim Crow by, say the author's name again? Uh, the New Jim, the new Crow, Jim Crow by Crow. Michelle Alexander. By Michelle Alexander. And what's the other book you were about to um, reference as well that you Yes, the, um, the, I'm actually reading um, the book on Malcolm X uh, biography. Um, the autobiography of Malcolm X? Yeah, yeah, which is, okay. uh, which is really good, really good book. I'm I'm still on chapter one, um, but That's I- That's written by the, by the state of his family, correct? Uh, it's written by Alex, I uh, forgot. Alex. Alex Haley? Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, the same the same author who wrote Roots. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, really good book. I've watched the movie, um, which is a really great movie, uh, but I wanted to read the book because the book actually gives you some more information on Malcolm X. And right. um, so I'm really still early on into that book. I'm still in the first, um, the first, I would say the first chapter. But, uh, but it's definitely something I'm excited to dive into. I've heard a lot of great things. Every time I, I tell someone I've watched the movie, they always say, read the book. That's always been their recommendation. Right. <laughs> so I'm definitely, gonna, I'm definitely reading that book and getting into it. So what's the last book you actually completed? And- the last book I actually completed was actually just, I would say, just before the end of the summertime. And that was by Dr. Umar Johnson, the, the Psycho Holocaust of Black Men, Black Boys, I believe it's called. And it pretty much talks about how the Board of Education, a lot of the times in these counties, in these communities, they use <clears throat> special education as a way to segregate a lot of our schools and to be able to, to, be able to prevent 
the Black boys in America from being able to reach their fullest potential in the classroom. Or create and, uh, the pipeline for the new prison system, I suppose he's also talking about. Well, well, it's mainly, it, there, there is a little bit of that in the book, but it pretty much talks about how, so for instance, when we were able, when, once we were able to desegregate schools in America, what took place was, you know, the, the majority of the people were not happy with that ruling, for instance. Mm -hmm. So they were not happy that the fact that white kids and black kids can go to school together. That was something that still was not happy, even though, you know, Brown, Brown Boys Board of Education, you know, took place and, you know, and Thurgood Marshall, along with a lot of other civil rights leaders, they were able to actually, you know, desegregate schools, there were still a lot of people who were not happy with that, specifically white people. And so what took place was they made special education. And pretty much what they did was they used that as a way to, hey, what we can do is they're going to come to the school anyway, but we can also see if we can segregate them inside of the school. So it looks like they're all going to the same school, but once we get into the school, it's segregated. So they created special education as a way to prevent black kids from being in the same classroom with white kids. Now, as now today, it's gotten a lot better. You don't see much of that today, but he pretty much talks about how that was started right after the desegregation of schools. And what mm -hmm. took place was they actually had criterias and what what constitutes a learning disability, which is very vague, ADHD, which is really vague. You know, if, you, if I was to tell you some of the criterias, you would say, well, that sounds like every actual boy in America, you know, mm -hmm. a boy who, you know, talks a lot, a boy who pretty much, you know, moves around a lot in the classroom. You know, any boy that's in middle school can't sit straight because we're, we're, we have a lot of testosterone. We want to move around. We can't, you know, that's the one thing about boys is we're always, we're wild. You know, we like to move around and like, the, you know what I mean? Loses things obsessively. You know, these criteria are so vague and they made them very vague. So they could fit whoever into that box. Exactly. And guess who was going into that box? Black boys. You right. know, and and that's what they were doing to actually be able to segregate the schools to keep them still segregated, even though they were desegregated. Right. OK, I have a few more questions. For you. Absolutely. Check my notes. Excuse me. <laughs> oh, no, it's OK. Do you have any tips for writers that want to get into the space that you're in now specifically as far as you being a writer for um, a major corporation. Um, you mean it's actually like getting into the actual like nonprofit in, uh, industry with their, okay. So what I would say first and foremost, what you wanna do is you wanna practice the craft of writing. I think that's really important. So you wanna make sure that you're writing on a consistent basis. You wanna read more than you actually write. I think that's really important. So you wanna do that on a consistent basis. And to be able to get into the nonprofit industry as a public relations um, expert or professional, what you wanna do is you wanna start doing things in the community, get involved with local community organizations that are doing things in the community. Because what you wanna do is you wanna enhance your experience in the nonprofit sector. Mm -hmm. Nonprofits is a really great industry to get into because you are giving back to the community and there's different kinds of nonprofit organizations. 
But what you want to do is you want to make sure you're doing community work and you're getting involved with nonprofit organizations. Mm -hmm. I would even say after a while, try to even get on the board of directors of a lot of these nonprofit organizations Mm -hmm. to be able to enhance your experience, I would say. And then, you know, continue practicing the craft of writing because that's really important. You know, the least you do it, the less effective you're going to be. The more you do it, the more it's going to improve. And I think if you keep doing that, I think that's the best path to be able to get into that sector. That's true. Mm-hmm. So um, how many hours do you recommend maybe reading or writing a day if, the, if people have time? I would say, here's my opinion. I would say at least spend an hour, at least an hour writing. And as far as reading, just as much as you can, I would say. Right just as much as you can. It doesn't even have to be a book. You can find articles online to read. Blogs, uh, different blogs. things that are interesting. Absolutely, yeah. I don't yeah. just read books. I also read articles and I read blogs as well. Um, very, you know, very great information because I think that's really important as well uh, because you're going to definitely pick up a lot of ideas. You're going to definitely definitely pick up on things. And then what you're able to do is you're able to actually Google a lot of things. And I would say also there's a lot of services out there that is really useful. You know, Grammarly is also a really good u- tool to use because you actually start to see some of the, the mistakes that you made and you're able to look at Grammarly and you're able to say, okay, that's how you're supposed to do that. So you know for the next time. It kind of gives you some tips and it kind of takes your work and shows you how you can enhance it. So I think those are a lot, there's a lot of good online tools out there you can use as well. That's true too. Uh, what was I going to ask you? Uh, when it comes to your first book, are you are you proud? Are your second book? I'm, it might have been actually the momentum. Yeah, the book I just I, referenced. Are yeah. you proud of it? Are you absolutely. proud of it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the best projects I worked on. Um, the reason why it was really um, important to me is because before my uh, great grandfather passed away, he always wanted me to write a book. Um, that was something that he always said that he wanted me to do. Um, and to be able to do that, unfortunately he had passed away before it was published. Um, but to be able to accomplish that was really good. And I think also the subject matter was really interesting for a lot of people because it created, it always created a good discussion. And so it pretty much was about athletes who didn't win championships and are they looked at differently? Are their careers judged differently you know, compared to the athletes who did win championships. And it was a really good discussion. I interviewed a lot of great people. Uh, Mike Hill, who was then on ESPN, who's now on Fox Fox Sports. Um, Kyle Turley, who used to play for the New Orleans Saints. Um, You know, so Brent Myers, who used to play for the New York Mets. Are you still in contact with these people today? No, I'm not on a consistent basis, but if I needed to get in contact with them, I probably could. Um, And so there was a lot of great people I actually interviewed in the book. Um, I I wanted to because I felt like it was really important to get their expert opinion on a lot of this stuff because of the fact that these guys actually are close to the game. They study the game and they know a lot of these athletes and they're having a lot of these discussions. And I I thought it was really great. And um, Howard Bryant actually was able to actually 
you know, sit and actually do the actual, um, do the actual outro with me, which I think was really good. Um, The forward is written by um, Ron Mitchell, who was the former New York Giants wide receiver. Um, Mm. So it was definitely a great project. I was really happy with myself. Um, It took me about two years to complete you know, really, really long time, but I'm really happy with that actual project. Um, You know, the one thing about a book is it's a lot of work, Um, lots of work, Um, really a lot of work. And also when you're doing a book that's based off of like real facts, you know, you got to make sure that stuff is factual and it's accurate. And it's something that's you know, that it's, that it's, it's almost as much research than you actually sitting down to write it. So no, don't yes, worry. actually, it's almost, I pretty much think I've done more research on that project than I did from my own master's thesis, which is like, you know, kind of, which is nothing but research. Right. Um, so I would say that, you know, that it was definitely a really great project. Of course, I read it and I always want you know, to improve on things. And I always say, I could have done that better. I could have done this better. Um, But it definitely, it definitely was a great, a great um, starting point for me as far as, you know, writing a book. And it was definitely something that I really enjoyed doing. Um, It definitely boosted my confidence. Um, And yeah, I'm really happy about it. I mean, if anyone wants to read it now, it's definitely outdated. (laughs) So you're going to read it and you're going to say, what? No, that person is in the Hall of Fame now. That was written, it was written a while ago, but um, it it definitely is something that I enjoy reading because it's a good discussion to have. Right. Um, Is there another book maybe on the horizon that you think you would want to write? Absolutely. Um, I'm always constantly thinking about books that I want to write. I definitely believe there's there's room for another book. So when are you going to take the time to sit down in a chair so you can do that? Hopefully, hopefully soon. Um, now that I actually have time, um, hopefully, hopefully soon. Um, there's always something, you know, there's an idea out there that I want to, I want to explore. Um, yeah, you can't let the... You can't let the, the student now become the teacher. That's kind of what, what happened when it came to books. Man. Yeah, absolutely. You definitely are, are right about that. But there is definitely a book on the, there is definitely some ideas that's brewing, but I definitely have another book in me for sure. Um, I definitely have another book in me for sure. Mostly it probably won't be on sports. It probably more so around um, systemic racism and, and social justice, those social justice issues that we have today in America. Um, so is that your reason for reading some of these um, very strong opinionated black books that are well needed in the market, but mm-hmm. is it also like research for yourself or if you're wanting to write another book, it would be something in that vein? Yeah, it definitely is. I would definitely say just interest. Uh, I, I definitely would say just, just you know, just interest. I, I personally feel like, you know, systemic racism, we see it every single day. Um, but, you know, a lot of people who aren't affected by it, right? And I think that's always the biggest issue we have in America. We know it exists as Black right. people, you know? Maybe not every Black person, but that's a story for another day. But most Black people know that systemic racism exists in America. But the issue that takes place is that there are a lot of people who are of different races who don't experience racism in America. So right. if you don't experience it, you don't see it and you don't believe you it's don't, there. Right, because it hasn't come through your, your front door yet, if it will ever. Exactly, it hasn't ever come. It will probably never come to their front door, right? Specifically, we're talking about our, our white counterparts. So that, and, and, that, and that's the constant struggle 
that that's always there. It's like, we see it, but they don't see it. And because they don't see it, that's the issue. And it, saying that system, saying that racism doesn't exist in America is almost like saying you don't believe in science or you don't, you believe the earth is flat because systemic racism is, you see it all the time. You, you definitely see it all the time. And I think what needs to happen is people need to educate themselves on this issue because right. COVID-19 is going to come and it's going to go. It may not go now. It's not going to go, no, go away now, but eventually it's going to die down. But systemic racism is going to be here. You know, when my right. life is ended and I'm, I'm six feet in the ground, systemic racism is still going to be here. And it's something that's been here for years, but we need to continue as a country to work towards dismantling that issue. But well, I think this is the first time in American history where we're not just complaining about the problem, we're actually talking about solutions that need to start taking place. And Absolutely. That's a big thing. But I think in the past, it's been a lot of problem, 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 and nobody, no race wants to hear about the problem. We need to find the solution. And I think we're finally finding potential solutions to try to go for, which we're, I think is, is, is a good step. Yeah, we're getting there, but it, we're still a long way from, we're a long way, a long way. No, from, no, of course, way. but imagine yeah. all the years everyone, we, we kept on saying that there was a problem. They mm -hmm. didn't want to see the problem. Now they that didn't. we got the air of most of them knowing mm -hmm. that there is a problem, now it's time to let them know, but this could be this one of the many solutions that are needed. So absolutely, absolutely. It's and still gonna be a fight, but- It is still a fight. I, and The thing is, you can't always talk about a problem without giving someone a potential solution so they can try to help eradicate the problem. So I think we finally figured out what the true problems are of how to, how to bring it out mm -hmm. in, a, in a diplomatic way where we can get things done. And I think I think eventually it will come. It might not come while we're alive, but I think now that we know the simple, simplistic solutions that we could put in place to, to prevent a lot of things, I think they're able to happen. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it all starts from redlining, segregation of communities due to lack of funds and things like that. And that all plays a part as well, especially with the Black communities. Absolutely. James Baldwin, one of my favorite scholars, said something that was really impactful. He says, everything faced, not everything that's faced will be changed, but nothing will change unless it's faced. So pretty much if, you know, we'll never be able to change racism unless we actually face it, but we can't give up on it because if we give up on it, then it will definitely never change. And I think that's really, really important. Um, right. And I think it's really important for people to comprehend. So it, it will mainly be in that genre, my next book, um, when I get started on it. But uh, but yeah, I, there's definitely another book in, in the horizon. There's definitely, I definitely do have you, another do book. Do you have a few working titles you're able to share with us or no? Titles? It's okay, it's okay if you don't. <laughs> you know, I know you gotta I, copyright that stuff. So. Yeah, yeah, I don't have any um, titles or so, but there's definitely like, a few a few topics out there that I, that I that I that I have it's really just about honing in on that and narrowing it down um so I'm still like in the flushing stages got it of it yeah I, I, I would say I'm still in the I'm still trying to flush it out you know I have I have some ideas but how am I going to be able to bring this together and make this an actual topic that people will be interested in reading about no, that's amazing. Yes. 
Thank you so much for your time, Kenrick Thomas. Um, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate this. I'm no, thank you for even, you know, being so insightful with some of the books you're reading, some writing tips. I greatly mm -hmm. appreciate it. I'm sure the audience will too. So to cap it off, I usually do a quote of the week and then lyrics of the week. So absolutely, pull out my, my notes so I can read the quote of the week. Yeah. The quote of the week is by Ronald Dahl, but um, he's the creator of the Charlie the Charlie Chocolate Factory and Matilda, the book. I don't care if a reader hates one of my stories just as long as he finishes the book. What I like about that quote is that um, it shows uh, a lack of ego. He doesn't have the ego. He just wants to make sure that his work is appreciated by somebody taking the time to read the book, the entire book. He doesn't care of their opinion. At least they took the time to read it, which is a sign of respect, I think, for all writers. So I think that's a beautiful quote is that that should be the goal is whoever buys a book for them to finish it. It doesn't matter their opinion because if they finished it, they were entertained enough to see where it lands them. And for I lyrics like of, yeah, same. And for lyrics of the week, it's a T.I. verse, the first verse, the castle walls. Observing the estate through the gate from the outside looking in. Bet you would think I got it made, better look again. I got butler, got a maid and a mansion. The belief is that I'm living out a millionaire's fantasy with phantoms and Ferraris in the driveway. But you see, I came in exchange of a sane man's sanity. Your vision jaded by the Grammys on the mantelpiece. To switch your camera lenses, you, you would see the agony. Apparently, it's damaging. The man you see before you on the canvas, he may seem all right, but all the disadvantages. His family encounters overshadows his extravagance. Walking my nines a while, I dare you, I scare you. But it really seemed like the king's life and glamorous as seen through the eyes of on-trained amateurs because the cameras don't see beyond the walls of the smiles only counts until it falls in the pile. And in that verse, I believe he's talking about the time that, um, when he was about to get incarcerated, how he was considered the best in the rap game at the time. And um, everything might seem well because he smiled, but really deep down, everything is crashing before him in his palace of, of the kingdom of him having to leave it to go to prison leave his family and things like that. So I think sometimes when you think you want the glorious road, it's not as glorious as it may seem. And I think it shows very well in his verse there and the way he wrote it was very poetic. And if I don't get flagged, I will be happily to put the verse in there so you can hear it much better than how I sounded with a beat and <laughs> his actual words. So that is, um, this is episode two of Americana Quill, Writer to Writer. Thank you so much, Connie Thomas, for Thank you for having me on. I'm honored and uh, definitely keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a great job. Thank you, man. All right, guys. Take care. Take care. Everyone thinks that I have it all, but it's so empty living behind these castle walls. These castle walls. If I should tumble, if I should fall, would anyone hear me screaming behind? There's no one here at all behind these castle walls.
Observing the estate through the gate from the outside looking in Bet you would think I got it made, better look again I got a butler, got a maid and a mansion He believes that I'm living out a millionaire's fantasy With phantoms and Ferraris in the driveway But you see it came in exchange of a same man's sanity Your vision jaded by the Grammys on the mantelpiece Just switch your camera lens as you will see the agony Apparently is damaging the man you see before you on the campus See may see my for all the disadvantages his family encounters overshadows his extravagance Walk in my nines a while, I dare you with a scare you While it truly seemed like the king life seemed glamorous It seen through the eyes of untrained amateurs Because the camera doesn't see beyond the walls Of the smiles on the castle till it falls